0: On the 15th of March 2019, when hundreds of Muslims gathered for Friday prayers at the al Noor Mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand, a man unknown to other worshippers joined the crowd. He was greeted with a friendly smile by Haji Du'ad Nabi. Welcome, brother, he said, before the man opened fire, shooting Nabi dead, and moving on to shoot other members of the congregation. He then travelled to another nearby Islamic centre and opened fire once more. He was on his way to a third place of worship when he was arrested by police. It took just 21 minutes for Brenton Tarrant to take the lives of 51 Muslims and tear apart the lives of hundreds of others forever. On August 27th, 2020, he was sentenced for the murders. Life in prison without parole, a sentence never before handed down in New Zealand. Prior to the attack, Tarrant had posted photographs of the guns he would use on Twitter explained his plan to users of an unregulated internet forum and sent out a rambling 74-page manifesto. His dedication to his online existence was such that he even live-streamed the massacre on Facebook for anyone to see. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Taylor Heyman, and this week we're asking how do people become radicalised online and what can be done to stop it? Was what is termed as a lone wolf attacker. He did not commit his crimes with anyone else or on behalf of an organisation, but he was part of a loose far right online subculture where he was able to share his views and was emboldened to commit an act of terrorism. In the days before the sentencing, victims and their families took the stand in New Zealand's High Court to describe the devastation the attack wrought on their lives. Losing loved ones, permanent injuries, and nightmares night after night, all caused by the actions of one man, radicalised online. First, what is radicalisation? Radicalisation is the gradual process whereby individuals are socialised into extreme beliefs that are articulated in non-violent and or violent acts. Although many people may link radicalization with groups like ISIS, incidents of far-right terrorism have been increasing in the West. The total number of incidents have increased by 320% over the past five years. For Tarrant, the Christchurch shooter, we know that after the death of his father in 2010, he quit his job and began travelling through Pakistan, North Korea, Eastern Europe, France and elsewhere, while also becoming increasingly involved in the world of online white nationalism. The online element of radicalisation is very powerful. COVID-19 and the unprecedented number of lockdowns around the world forced many to stay at home or risk legal consequences. The action rang alarm bells for those studying radicalisation and extremism online, who feared isolated individuals could be drawn into extremist organisations or ideas while alone with only the internet for company. This is something that we have
1: noticed both in violent jihadist groups, but also in the violent far right, that they have been capitalising on,
0: on COVID-19 and they have been creating narratives around it. This is Athena Semprin from Moonshot CVE, an organisation that works to intervene to prevent the radicalization of people online. So groups like white supremacists,
1: they use moments of chaos as part of a theory called accelerationism. So is the idea that participating in mass attacks will accelerate the collapse of social structures and enable um, rebuilding of a society in the form of a racially pure nation. And we've seen that happening in uh, violent far-right, in platforms
0: that violent far-right discussions uh, are taking place. This idea of the collapse of social structures is apparent in the writing of the Christchurch killer. He wrote in his manifesto, that one of his reasons for the attack was to incite violence, retaliation, and further divide between the European people and the invaders. By invaders, he meant all those that were, according to the far-right nationalist ideology he championed, not of a pure white European heritage. Extremism of all kinds centres on the idea of othering. Here's Athena explaining how Islamist groups have a similar outlook. Similarly, violent jihadist groups have, have used
1: this narrative to radicalise at-risk users and they have presented uh, COVID-19 as a curse against infidels. Initially, then they changed that, say that it was a curse against those Muslims that were not practising religion in its purest form. So this is a similarity that we've noticed across both types of the most well-known types of violent extremism.
0: Whether an individual can be wholly radicalised online is up for debate. Some experts say those vulnerable to extremist groups are searching for belonging. A 2016 University of Maryland study of 198 Muslims in the United States found immigrants who identify with neither their heritage culture or the culture they are living in feel marginalised. For some, including those attracted to far-right ideas, radicalism offers a sense of meaning and purpose. But being marginalised isn't the only factor involved. Here's Athena again.
1: There are so many different factors, and I think they're all unique to each individual on how, why they may find this type of content appealing. And the factors can be so varied; it can be from isolation, it can be personal grievances, like political grievances. They can be like socioeconomic, psychosocial factors. It would be really difficult to, you know, like make make a, a list that would be without generalizing for the at-risk audience.
0: Although the reason someone is susceptible to radicalization may differ, extremist recruiters know how to engage susceptible individuals. Jesse Morton knows a lot about this topic. He used to be a prolific recruiter for al-Qaeda, but now works for Parallel Networks, Inc., an organization committed to fighting extremism. He explains the methods he used to employ.
2: So one of the things that we recognized very early on as I learned um, the art of radicalization and recruitment was that a message is only powerful if it has offline impact. And so what we were very uh, capable of grasping as the world transitioned into social media 2.0, Facebook, Twitter, um, communications, as opposed to the discussion forums, and the long threads on internet websites that I had officially ingrained that Islamist identity with him, Uh, was that people had short attention spans and that they really liked emotional content. And we started to play around with uploading emotional uh, videos that were based upon one-on-one conversations on the ground, but then linking that to a website and then allowing that website to serve as an entry point where we would startle your emotions and make ourselves look like heroes of Islam that we're actually doing something to defend Muslims against. And we would use emotional content, short videos, short clips, Exciting, somewhat controversial, covering topics that were appealing and that were uh, going around on the internet at the time. Then you'd go to the website and you'd fall down the rabbit hole. From there, you would get further information, further indoctrination.
0: This appeal to emotion and call against injustice in the recruitment of Islamists echoes what Tarrant wrote about his own radicalization. He was traveling around France in 2017, at this point, already engaged with extremist content when according to his own statements, two events motivated his decision to commit an act of violence. The first was the death of a child in an Islamist terror attack in Stockholm, where a man drove a truck into a crowd of people. The second was the loss of Marine Le Pen, the leader of the far-right National Rally Party, in the French elections. Was Terence's decision almost two years before his eventual act of terror, facilitated by his online interactions? The communities that foster radicalisation online are full of people with the same extremist viewpoints. Jesse Morton, the former Al-Qaeda recruiter, believes in the power of the echo chamber. An echo chamber is a place or community where a person's ideas go unchallenged and often are reinforced due to the presence of like-minded people. Jesse said once he directed people to the right website, they were a captive audience. The echo chamber of radical views gave those within it a sense of belonging. But even when he was recruiting on social media, the sites helped build this echo chamber through their own algorithms.
2: There was a time when you would go onto YouTube, Facebook or Twitter or the outlets that we were using when I was active. And if you would friend one Salafi jihadist immediately, in your list of recommended friends or recommended people to follow, you would only see other salafi jihadists because of the way that the common phrases, because of the way that they all followed each other, um, and that we are all part of a tight-knit online community. So immediately, rather than just meet one person that you found appealing, you'd be surrounded by other people that believe the same way, which will cement your views.
0: Platforms like Facebook and Twitter have now built complex technology to identify and automatically take down extremist content. But smaller platforms find it more difficult to moderate, even if they wanted to. As larger platforms kick users off for sharing extremist content or being a member of a banned group, they migrate to other, less regulated platforms. The dangers of this are that obviously the extremist content and groups that proliferate it are more difficult to monitor they know this. Chelsea Damon is a terrorism researcher and PhD candidate at the American University in Washington DC. Part of her research involved joining ISIS groups on social media platforms to learn more about them.
3: ISIS has used the internet very savvily in the future as well as in the past. So they used to use more platforms that were very public, like Twitter so forth. And then in 2016, Twitter aggressively got rid of accounts that were ISIS or ISIS-affiliated. And then the group slowly migrated to encrypted platforms, which provided them with more security and an environment to disseminate all types of
0: propaganda. Encrypted messaging apps offer a secure alternative for users who want to message others without being tracked. These apps have been put under pressure by various governments to bring an end to allowing extremism to breed on the platform. But by allowing these groups to flourish on their platforms, Chelsea says they've also enabled study and prosecution of ISIS members.
3: So videos, magazines from groups, documents, they have GIFs, memes that are ISIS-related – and newsletters and then even there was a time when there's a lot of instructional material and when I say instructional material it was everything from
0: building explosive devices or how to plan a good attack in this type of style. There were also elements of building belonging in ways that today's teenagers might recognise. As we talked about earlier, many of those driven to extremism of any kind are searching for a feeling of fitting in and often find a community among fellow extremists. Brenton Tarrant, in his own manifesto, alluded to this sense of belonging. He decried the multicultural, egalitarian, individualistic insanity. Yes, it is quite rambling. And said that like-minded young men and women look for allies in the flesh and online to congregate, discuss, despair, strategize, debate and plan. All friendship groups have shorthand they use to get along. You may use jargon at work or certain emojis to represent your thoughts in a WhatsApp group with friends. It's the same for ISIS followers and the far right. Here's Chelsea.
3: This consists of material that still has a message and still resonates to the audience that recognises symbolism that's within the content, but it also is not the gore that potentially could turn other people off. And in my own research, I think that this is used to Expand the audience of potential supporters Some of the content which is really interesting are especially with Isis. They love cats Um, There's a lot of cat gifts cat memes Cat themed groups as well Um, Another thing that we see which is also interesting is is chocolate themed groups and sometimes I wonder if this is also to avoid potential shutdowns of channels and groups by naming them something that doesn't associate with ISIS necessarily or a terror group. So it could be a way of evading shutdowns as well. Another thing that just as you and I do when we're texting friends or even sending emails is the use of emojis. And you and I have emojis that we recognize as certain things that resonate with us in our culture and ISIS does as well. Like, for instance, they really like to use what we would consider the number one finger, but for them, it represents takbir, and this represents this idea of oneness of God and so forth. And we see that used a lot when potentially there's an announcement of an an attack, and supporters will post this emoji. And then there are certain emojis that you and I might say, okay, that makes sense that ISIS used... And, and that's, for instance, things like bombs and knives. And they also like to use that in conversations. But there's a whole list of emojis that they use that maybe represent something that, for us, we wouldn't associate with looking at it from the outside and not being part of that popular culture.
0: But for them, it resonates. The far right is a little different, but still uses online shorthand to create a club-like culture. So the far right group's
3: have a lot of content online. And a lot of it tends to be within meme form, which is an interesting development because the memes tend to be in a way that there's like humor involved, but yet they still have messages, which once again, if you're in that group, you would associate with. And it's almost a way of having plausible deniability that if anyone takes this meme and then commits an attack, Whoever posted the meme can say, oh, no, it was a joke. It wasn't meant to incite violence. So that's something interesting we're seeing with more of the far-right leaderless resistance movements um, here in the States and elsewhere.
0: Brenton Tarrant, the Christchurch shooter, made a number of references to far-right online culture. From catchphrases commonly used on the websites he visited, to music played during the massacre that other followers would recognise. Not only was this a hat tip to the people he was trying to impress or had been inspired by, it also led to people searching for the music afterwards. Moonshot CVE analysed the demographics of people engaging with the music featured in the livestream video of the New Zealand attack between October 2018 and March 2019. They found the dramatic spike in interest in the music tracks he played was 90% male and 40% were between the ages of 18 and 24. Although Tarrant himself claimed he did not commit these acts for fame, in fact, he called the idea laughable. His act has been cited by other extremists since. Gunmen in the El Paso Walmart shooting, the Poway, California Synagogue shooting and the Al Noor Islamic Center shooting in Norway all cited the Christchurch killings and Tarrant's manifesto as inspirations for their crimes. Tarrant himself cites Anders Breivik, the far-right terrorist who killed 77 people in Norway in 2011, in his own manifesto. An Institute for Economics and Peace study of 32 far-right terrorist attacks that killed at least one person between 2011 and 2018 found that less than a quarter of the perpetrators had definite in-person contact with other far-right individuals or groups. Over a third appear to have been primarily radicalised online. The FBI also sees online radicalization as a threat. In June 2019, Michael McGarity, the FBI's counterterror assistant director, addressed a U.S. Congress hearing on the federal response to white supremacy. In recent years, lone offenders have committed the most lethal domestic extremist violence. These offenders primarily use firearms and often act without specific guidance from a group. Radicalization of domestic terrorists primarily occurs through self-radicalization online, which can sometimes present mitigation difficulties. It is a challenge for law enforcement. The Internet and social media enables individuals to engage other domestic terrorists without face-to-face meetings. We have seen multiple devastating attacks committed by domestic terrorists in recent months. Most recently in the U.S., these include the shootings at the Shabbat of Poway Synagogue in Poway, California, and the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Although the evidence of radicalization online is very compelling, it isn't something that exists in a bubble. Here's Chelsea.
3: I've been doing research in this field for many years and I've seen pretty much everything, yet I'm not radicalised. I'm not going to go attack a
0: mosque or a synagogue or an individual. An older study from 1999, titled The Sociology and Psychology of Terrorism, put together by government agencies in the USA, looked at a vast array of groups and people to try to discover what type of individual becomes a terrorist and why. The study describes the general traits of an individual terrorist as someone who is alienated from society, has a grievance or considers themselves a victim of an injustice. They also found the terrorists were over 80% male. Although there are terrorists who fall outside of these categories, it is fair to assume online radicalisation draws a certain crowd. You're less likely to be radicalised by extremist content if you're a woman who has a sense of belonging and a deep sense of gratitude for your circumstances in life. But even with these tendencies documented, what can be done to prevent people becoming radicalised? There is a debate on how extremist content online should be tackled. Athena explains the conundrum. I think
1: that when it comes to violent extremist content, yes, it should be taken down, especially violent extremist content. And I think that social media platforms have definitely sped up their efforts to identify this type of content very quickly and remove it. But uh, like I said before, yes, violent extremist groups are also very tech savvy and they, they've they learned their game and they know how to circumvent all these new bans and policies and moving from one platform to the other. Which of course, yes, I can see like the, the challenge being very big for the type of work that we do because we see violent extremist groups moving from the more mainstream platforms like Facebook or YouTube or Twitter to more fringe platforms like Telegram and Hoop and Gab and all the champ platforms. It definitely becomes more difficult to, to monitor this type of uh, behavior and ensure an early intervention or early counter earlier
0: counter-messaging efforts. Research from Tech Against Terrorism, covering 45,000 URLs since 2014, found half of the top 50 platforms used by ISIS are small and micro-platforms, such as Telegram, Kik and Ask.fm. But there are ways to tackle this trend. In 2017, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter and Microsoft were among the internet giants to form the Global Internet Forum for Counterterrorism. Larger members of the forum collate and share a database of terrorist content, which smaller members of the platform are welcome, but not obligated, to use to help identify similar content on their own platforms. But some smaller sites have shown no interest in changing. This led researchers at Moonshots EVE to realise they needed to intervene earlier in the process. Athena explains the multi-pronged approach to intervening early. We work with a
1: variety of content that aims at undermining extremist narratives. So sometimes with facts, sometimes with emotional appeal, sometimes with comedy. Other times we try to tackle the underlying factors and vulnerabilities and grievances or like psychosocial factors that may be making those users more vulnerable to radicalization. So we've tried lots of different types of content. A lot of uh, content that we have found to resonate a lot is... uh, testimonies of former extremists, uh, but also of victims and survivors of violent extremist attacks.
0: Moonshot, the company Athena works for, hopes to bombard any future terrorists and shooters with a range of strategies that can hopefully break the effects of the online echo chamber. As important as stopping people from entering these movements is, so is helping people to leave them. Here's former white supremacist Tony McAleer talking to a US congressional committee in 2019.
2: I spent 15 years in the white supremacist movement. I was a skinhead. I was a neo-Nazi. I I eventually moved to a suit and tie and was involved in the white Aryan resistance. And I committed a lot of violence, a lot of violence that I have um, a lot of shame for, a lot of healthy shame. And part of this work that I do is the accountability, the holding myself accountable for the horrible deeds that I've done. But it was... It was other people that reached out that gave me a way back in. And I think we have to keep the door open. As much as it's important to call people out when they're doing this stuff, we also must be in a position to call people in.
0: Like Tony, Jesse Morton and other de-radicalised people are essential in helping garner insights on why people become radicalised in the first place and for guiding people out of the movements they have become captivated by.
2: There's a very high correlation between developmental trauma and radicalization that we're beginning to explore more. It's been identified in some of the literature, but we see it on a regular basis. And I think that that's really something that needs to be taken into consideration for why we were appealing to those that were prone and predisposed already to go on to accept or mobilize for and commit violence. We can be anyone we want online. Um, and I think that that's one of the variables. I could be whoever I wanted to be And I could be somebody who was significant. I could be somebody who had friends and who was popular in a group movement. These were things that I didn't necessarily have in my real world and now it's only gotten a bit worse because the information is at the hands of your phone, it's on your hip all day your abs are on your phone and so you can walk around throughout the day and you can experience something negative in the real world but turn to your phone for a sense of soothing and comfort and if you're turning to your phone for a sense of soothing and comfort and escape and all you have is ISIS people telling you that yes you're living in very hard times but this is a day when Islam is under attack there will be 72 sects from amongst the Jews and Christians, 73 sects from amongst the Muslims, but only one sect from amongst the Muslims will be in paradise.
0: Jesse's work with Parallel Networks has found picking off individuals for intervention is not as effective as engaging those with influence inside these extremist communities.
2: We concentrate on the hubs. And when we get a hub to engage with us in discourse, we can get them a leader, someone who's influential, someone who's posting propaganda, someone who is representative of, uh, of, a, of a component of a network that is primarily producing output. And we can take them through a process where once they leave, they can announce that they've left and then they can become a credible messenger inside of that community.
0: As we see a rise in right-wing ideology and the persistence of Islamist extremism, it seems the online presence of these individuals is what gives them a sense of belonging and a purpose that they often lack in the real world. But with insights from academic researchers and those who found their way out of radical outlooks, a strategy has formed one that can challenge the myopic views and echo chambers that are slowly being erased online while also intervening and offering alternatives. Although the tragedy of the Christchurch shootings cannot be undone, there are people working hard to prevent such atrocities from occurring again. This is Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Taylor Heyman. Thanks this week to Athena Semprin, Chelsea Damon and Jesse Morton. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe And if you can spare a minute, we would really appreciate a review. This episode was produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison.